Hello and welcome to the Qubit Guy podcast brought to you by Classic, the quantum algorithm design company. My name is Yuval and my guest today is Chris Ferry, an associate professor of physics at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a prolific author of books teaching scientific concepts to children. Chris and I spoke about whether qubits spin the other way in Australia, his teaching and research interest, the quantum ecosystem in Australia, and much more. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please let us know how we did by emailing hello at classic.io. That's hello at classic.io. Hello, Chris, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Chris Ferry. I'm an associate professor at the Center for Quantum Software and Information, and that's within the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, in Australia. We just know it as UTS. And uh, I do research in, in some areas of quantum computing. And uh, also, I think I'm probably better known as a, as a children's book author. So I've, I've written some books, including Quantum Physics for Babies. And you've, you've written dozens of dozens of books, right, on, on many aspects <laughs> of physics, I think. Yeah, I've written, uh, in, for, in, English, in English, I've written, I think we're at 60 books now. And that includes, um, now that my own children are getting older, I'm getting less interested in writing baby books. And so I've started writing some adult nonfiction books as well. Wow. And, and so you've t- taught babies and you're teaching graduate students and college students. How about in between? I mean, do you have experience or interest in teaching high school students or grade school students? When, when is a good time to start with quantum? Oh, that's a great question. So, the, I mean, there's, a, there's actually a, um, a kind of boring technical barrier in that to teach babies is in some sense easy because you just have to connect with parents and they're the ones that buy books and show up at libraries and events. Uh, as a professor, you kind, you kind of have the freedom to, to do whatever you want. So you can teach people that show up at university. But in the, you know, the formal public education system, there's a curriculum. And if that curriculum doesn't include quantum computing, then it's very difficult to even get your foot in the door. So I, I would say, yes, you know, we should be teaching high school students and, and certainly even elementary school students, um, so, you know, the basic aspects of, of this technology that, you know, may be important in their lives in the future, or maybe they want to be involved in, in, in helping build it. But, you know, it's not in the curriculum. And so it, it becomes very difficult to, to just, you know, get in front of that audience. And what would you teach? I mean, do you want to assume that they know trigonometry? Uh, would you teach them matrix multiplication from the beginning? How, how would you go about it? Well, I mean, that, yeah, that's a good question. I think, how would I, how would I start? I don't think I would start with mathematics for younger audiences. I mean, it's in much the same way that, you know, we, we teach students, young students, facts about the world in the universe that, um, you know, there's really no, no direct evidence for, say, that everything in the world is made of atoms. Everybody knows that. No, nobody questions that. But do you know what the evidence for that is? You know, so it's, it's not like we have to teach them, 
you know, quantum field theory before they're convinced that atoms exist. Um, and in much the same way, we need to find out what, what the important things to tell people are about quantum technology so that it becomes like atoms, that, that it's just a, something about it that everyone just, just agrees is, is true and they can get sort of get on with, with the next steps. So that's, I think, where I would, where I would start is, is to say that there's a different sort of way to do computing and this will help us solve some new kinds of problems like, um, you know, in designing materials that, that, that the kinds that we, we enjoy that are completely unnatural that we're surrounded by, uh, I'm surrounded by basically nothing that's natural in this, in this room, um, at, and in new medicines, which I think, um, you know, include things like vaccines, which I think are entirely relevant today. So it's, I think it's easy to connect uh, aspects of quantum computing to the, your everyday world. Uh, and then I think in high school, in much the same way as we start to introduce math into physics, we, you know, then we would, we would introduce, um, you know, the concepts. But I think I would start with just circuits, just quantum circuits, you know, just um, say, you know, here's, here's, here's a thing and you can add gates to it and it does stuff, you know, let's play with it and see what happens. What do you think is the most difficult concept for people to understand? Is it the superposition? Is it entanglement? What, what is it about quantum that becomes spooky? <laughs> so I think, I think the, the, the meta difficulty is it is actually for experts to accept that we don't need to t teach people about superposition and entanglement in, in much the same way that, you know, we don't need to teach people about tunneling in transistors before they understand how to code a web app. Right. Uh, so when, when people interact with quantum technology in the future, they, they won't know what superposition and entanglement are. They'll have some higher level language that connects with the standard interfaces that we have, keyboards and, and monitors and, and mice. Um, and there'll be, you know, there'll be some abstractions which don't require that, that people understand these sort of like nitty gritty details about physics. Excellent. So education aside, you are also a researcher. Could you tell me a little bit about what you're researching? What are you trying to find? What your students more or less are working on? Sure. Yeah. So I am a researcher. I have a large research group, which means I'm more of a, a manager. Um, unfortunately, I don't get a lot of time to do my own research that, you know, that my own personal interests are follow what the grant milestones tell you that you need to produce, uh, which is uh, a few things. So I, so the lowest level, I, maybe let, I can tell you in the context of like the quantum software stack, right? So we work at sort of the low level, um, you know, hard, hardware instructions, also known as quantum controls, uh, trying to design um, the, the, the really sort of low-level instructions that you would send to some quantum piece of quantum technology, a quantum device, um, you know, whether it's natural like an atom or artificial like a superconducting circuit, to get it to do what you what you want it to do. So, um, 
part of that so that there's a sort of a, a catch-22 there that if you are just presented with a device you don't know what you know a description of it so the first thing you need to do is characterize it and, and the way you do this is is again through sending it instructions and then looking at the response so we do both the characterization and control of of quantum devices and not real devices like at abstract level and using like the theory of quantum uh, of quantum physics uh, some of some of our 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 protocols and results end up being used in, in, in laboratories, but we try to make them sort of general. Uh, and then moving up the stack, we we work on um, like hybrid quantum algorithms. So maybe the listeners are familiar with with quantum optimization, things like QAOA and VQE and lots of other sort of three level three letter acronyms. Um, and we, what what we try to do there is see um, you know what what the effect of noise is when you try to do a very detailed simulation of these algorithms. So for a real problem, say take like a vehicle routing problem or a traveling salesman problem or something like that, and you know break it down into all the gates that you need to to run on a quantum computer, but then include noise and see see what happens. Um, so it's very sort of um, in the weeds and and and, hand, and and practical in that sense. And then at the sort of top of the stack, we we work on um, quantum machine learning, and in particular, like quantum algorithms to train quantum neural networks and other uh, similar sort of um, primitives. So rather than what what people envision today is using of classical computers to train quantum neural networks. And that that has a lot of problems associated with it. So we're designing quantum algorithms that will train these networks. And of course, that requires a large scale quantum computer. So this is sort of, you know, more blue sky stuff. So we kind of cover a, a lot of the a lot of the software stack. When you talk about pulse shaping and the low level stuff, is that a transient problem? Meaning, do you expect that three years from now, people will still be looking at pulse shapes and how to get atoms to do what you want from them? Uh, I think I think so. I, I think a lot of it will move into academic research and, and, and labs, people that, you know, have prototype devices, um, you know, build, building new, new technology, uh, for, for you know for quantum computing we'll have to continually innovate and design like design new control systems for them so the I think that will always happen my suspicion is that in in industry you probably don't want a, a system that requires like a PhD or a whole team of PhD quantum physicists constantly uh, you know by hand designing designing pulses. So there, I think there are be some stable, stable system or some actively stabilized system that, that works in an automated way. One of the things that we think about at Classic is scaling up uh, systems from you know, five qubits to 50 qubits to 500 qubits and not just the pulses, but 
the algorithms? How do you create an algorithm that is efficient and makes efficient use of 500 qubits or whatever large number when it's becoming difficult to do so by hand? What do you see as the issues of scaling up? I mean, toy circuits are are nice, but ultimately we're going to need bigger computers and bigger circuits to solve big problems. What do you see as the main issues in getting there? I, I well, you know the the problem of of course is the exponential scaling uh, in, in in quantum technology, right? So you you have to find a way that so in the sort of typical model that we, we think of we we assume we can control individual qubits which we need to do and then we can control a few interactions between qubits and then we have to build algorithms on top of that sort of restricted connectivity or topology and it, in some sense it kind of has to be that way because you can't you know you can't design a control system that will create a a, a single interaction amongst 500 qubits um, not in the not in the way that we do it now which is we design them on com- with conventional computers so at, with 500 qubits you, you just can't simulate it right so I think that's the problem with with control is is that we we're in this classical mindset right we have to we feel the need to be able to see the solution and that means simulate um, the, the model and that that you just can't do once you reach a certain qubit number how much are you involved or your colleagues are involved with industry i mean do you get 17 calls a day, hey, help us shape this pulse, or we want to build this new quantum computer or do better VQE, or are you just happy working in, in the research lab? Uh, I mean, we, it's, it's a bit difficult um, in, some, in some Australian... The problem in Australia is that every university has its own IP policy for its staff. And so it becomes very difficult to... Uh, engage between industry and academia, especially nowadays when uh, universities in Australia are, are struggling because of the, the pandemic and the lack of international students, and that means lack of revenue. So, you know, unfortunately, they're looking to say protect more aggressively, protect their IP, and and so for a lot of researchers, it just becomes a non-starter. They just don't have the time or patience or energy to deal with uh, their, their own university's um, lawyers and, and whoever else sits on the top floor. Uh, so, it, yeah, it, there's not a lot, of, a lot of interaction. You know, most of the interaction I see is between former colleagues, right? So we have many colleagues that have decided that they're going to leave academia, maybe even only temporarily, to go into industry, and they ma- maintain their their what was their former, you know, academic uh, connections. And so, yeah, in, in those cases, there's, there's a lot of informal, you know, conversations that, that happen, but not a lot of like formal stuff. There's not a lot of like contract research that that's being done in Australia among between 
industry in, in academia. So I think you and I were both wondering if qubits spin the other way in Australia. But <laughs> other than that, from what you can see, how is the Australian ecosystem different than other parts of the world, whether it's the way the government interacts with companies, whether the balance between companies and academia, or is there anything that you could share with us that you think is unique about Australia, about the Australian uh, quantum ecosystem? Uh It's been so it's been tough, I think, with with the pandemic, because Australia is just so isolated. I mean, physically, obviously, it's isolated. But that means that, um, you know, that even though we have the Internet and, you know, I mean, we're evidencing it right now that the world is quite small. Uh, but with these conversations don't happen a lot. Right. You you tend to interact with people that are physically close to you most right and so i think in australia we've we've kind of lost a bit of touch with the ecosystem globally for that reason uh just because we tend to interact with the people that are local and we're not traveling to to make ourselves uh uh you know non-localized so the australian ecosystem i think is is much smaller from from what i can see from all the way across the ocean um, and it it doesn't it's certainly not growing at the same pace um, and part part of the reason I think is because around the world many governments have have, have glo- um, you know national or multinational initiatives around quantum technology which includes a, a large amount of, of funding and In Australia, we don't have that. There's no global or no you know, national quantum initiative, although you know there's always sort of talks about getting one started. Um, so I think I mean that's, that's not surprising if you're in Australia, it tends to sort of lag behind a little bit, um, which isn't bad. You know we get to see what works and what doesn't work and then <laughs> and then cherry pick the, the things that do work. Um, but it's yeah as I said the, there's only a handful of startups in, in Australia and of course multinational companies have you know a, a little bit of a, of a footprint in Australia but but not not to the extent of, in the rest of the world so as we get closer to the end of our conversation let's assume that you were master of the quantum universe for a couple of years uh, and you control the activity of the companies like classic and other commercial companies in this space hardware software and so on what would you like us to be working on in these two years that you're master of the quantum universe uh, yeah I want I want you to build a quantum computer if you don't mind <laughs> uh, I think I mean my point of view is that that there's a there's seems to be a problem in that the The ecosystem or the, the, the people trying to enter the ecosystem you know with money and, and and a lot of the people within the ecosystem with with egos seem to think that quantum technology including the task of building a quantum computer is like other you know Silicon Valley uh, technologies that you know so somebody in their garage can just come up with a good idea and And it'll be some unicorn company that'll make a handful of people really rich. But I think the reality is that quantum 
the, the task of building a quantum computer is the, probably the most difficult scientific and engineering challenge that humanity has ever faced. It's more difficult than landing on the moon, right? Uh, it'll be more difficult than, well, we've already landed on Mars, but landing a human on Mars, I think will be easier than building a quantum computer. So I think we need a co more coordinated effort, not a bunch of, well, what, what it was 10, 15 years ago was a bunch of individual academic groups, maybe a, a handful of people where most of the work was done by uh, you know, graduate students that came in <laughs> not knowing much. Um, and now it's, it's, it's just changed to be done by a handful of companies with a little bit more money and a few more people. It's, that's not how it's going to happen. I mean, it, it will take a, a coordinated effort amongst a large number of people with a large amount of, of funding. And so if I was the master of the, the quantum universe, then, then I would just, you know, bring, bring them all together and, and yeah, try to make it happen. Fantastic. So Chris, how can people get in touch with you to learn more about your work? Uh, I think uh, probably the, the best way would be Twitter, I suppose. Uh, so it's uh, at CS Ferry. Um, uh, or, yeah, I guess you can check out my website or, or Google me. And there's some contact info there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for the chat.